If you follow figure skating, you just might know the answer to this trivia question. I don't really, but Karen loves it, and so, yeah, we watch it together. So, who was the first American woman to ever land a triple axel in competition? First American woman to ever land a triple axel. Yes. No. No. She is very gifted. Well, I'll tell you a little bit more and maybe some of you will figure it out. It was really an amazing moment. It was, it was kind of like breaking the four-minute mile. Because for, for decades, women's ice skating had been limited to, to double jumps or the easier triple lutz. And the the triple axle is super hard because you have to start out skating forward, so you actually are doing three and a half rotations. And to land that cleanly just seemed impossible. But in 1991, at the US Championships, this skater not only did that, she not only won the title, she got the first perfect score, 6.0, ever given there. And if you want to go back and see her on YouTube, she's standing there with this huge smile. She's got this light blue sparkly dress and people are just like clapping and standing and cheering and throwing flowers out onto the ice. It's this incredible moment. The next two years, though, uh, she began to have trouble landing the triple axle in competition. And her skating career began to decline. And right about then, a newer skater came along, named Nancy Kerrigan, who was getting more of the attention and more of the spotlight. So, Tanya Harding, there you go. Did anybody get it before? Okay, yeah. The one who was losing her place, she either encouraged this plan or did nothing to stop it, a plan that would get rid of her threat. It was exactly 30 years ago today, Epiphany, January 6th, <laughs> Nancy Kerrigan finished practicing in Kobo Arena in Detroit, and she came off the ice, she put on her blade guards, and started walking down the hill, uh, hall, and she heard this noise behind her, and she turned, and this hard black stick, she didn't know whether it was like a crowbar, or a billy club, it was swung like as hard as you can swing it into her thigh. It, thankfully, it missed her knee. It hit just above the knee, and uh, she was bruised so badly that her doctors refused to let her skate at the U.S. Championships. She was unable to. So uh, Tanya Harding's ex-husband, Jeff Galuli, and three others were later caught and sent to prison for that attack. And Tanya Harding got uh, three years of probation, $160,000 fine, and she was barred from figure skating for life. Now, that is a hard story to, to take in. But in tonight's Bible reading, Matthew tells us another true story remarkably like it. Only instead of two ice skaters, it's two kings. 
The one king is a grown-up, and the other is a toddler. The one is powerful with soldiers just waiting for his command. The other one is powerless, and at 18 months, he's only speaking about 20 words, so he's not commanding anyone. One is violent. The other one's vulnerable. And at the time, not even half of children made it to their fifth birthdays. Now, I invite you into this story because it tells us something essential about Jesus Christ. I began to marvel even more at him through this week, and I wonder if you may as well. And it also tells us something essential about how we live in a world where we are vulnerable, and so many around us are too. The story starts in Matthew 2, verse 1, and I'll be using the message translation. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem Village, Judah territory, this was during Herod's kingship, a band of scholars arrived in Jerusalem from the east, much like you saw. And thank you for that brooding Herod, Eric. <laughs> you reminded me of Oliver Stone's portrayal of Nixon or something. <laughs> Uh, they, anyway, they asked around, where can we find and pay homage to the newborn king of the Jews? We observed a star in the eastern sky that signaled his birth. And we're on pilgrimage to worship him. Now, who exactly are these scholars that show up on a quest to worship a, a new king? Well, probably they're experts in astronomy, and at that time, it's mixed with astrology, so there's a lot of meta-meanings to their observation of the stars and planets. And they also probably study a little medicine, a little science. They're, they're like PhDs working for a government-funded think tank. So there they are, working away in Baghdad, doing their research, and they notice this really bright star. Some scholars think it may have been a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, but unusually bright. And so they look through their library books to figure out what it means. And they come across the Hebrew scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, which had been carried to that part of the world 600 years earlier by the Jews who were carried into exile and brought those writings with them. And those scriptures say, and this is in Numbers 24, by the way, there shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. A star out of Jacob, a scepter out of Israel. What is that saying? Star, scepter. They figured out this bright star means, over Israel, means that a new ruler, a new king, carrying the scepter has now arisen. And so they think we should lead a royal delegation, honoring this new king and bringing valuable gifts from our own country. So they do. Now, to travel 900 or 1,000 miles, even if they had camels, that's a big trip. That's expensive. It's really kind of audacious. Uh, it would be very difficult. I, it would be like uh, all of us here deciding we're going to bike to Houston. You know, like, well, you know, <laughs> I actually talked to a friend of mine who once biked coast to coast, and I said, what would it take? 
to, to do a trick, trek like that, and, and she said, well, you'd have to line up sponsors because it's crazy expensive. You'd have to buy advance vehicles, outfit a van with spare bike parts, plan all the food, recruit a physical therapist, and a whole lot more, you know? And these scholars from Persia are willing to do all of that, the equivalent, because they're on a quest to worship this new king. But, verse 3, when word of their inquiry got to Herod, he was terrified. And not Herod alone, but all of Jerusalem with him. Okay, Herod calls himself the king of the Jews, but he's only half Jewish. So he has a very sketchy claim to power. And by the way, he's using his power to keep down the Jews on behalf of the Roman overlords and his own benefit as well. As the, so to have a real king who is attested by a real star in the heavens, this freaks him out. As the late writer Frederick Buechner put it, for all his enormous power, Herod knew there was someone in diapers more powerful still. Now, Herod is nobody's fool. He has stayed in power for 40 years in a violent world because anybody who seems like a threat or they might become a threat is soon at their own funeral. Herod has already, he's murdered his wife. He murdered his mother-in-law. He murdered two of his sons. And then there was this popular young high priest who was apparently getting too popular because he suddenly had a drowning accident. Even though the pool was only a couple feet deep, you know how accidents can happen. And it is into this violent world that Jesus comes and he's vulnerable. He's sitting on his mother's lap. He's playing in the dirt. He's a child. And now Herod wants to search and destroy. So he calls two meetings, one with the Bible experts to find out where the new king would be born, Bethlehem, and one with the Magi to figure out when, and he gets, it's probably about a year and a half, roughly. And Herod comes up with this brilliant strategy. Pretending to be as devout as the scholars were, he says, go find this child, leave no stone unturned. As soon as you find him, send word, and I'll join you at once in your worship. And as soon as the Magi get out of his palace, he thinks, you fools. You think you're so smart, and now you are on my payroll as my spies. Verse 11, the scholars entered the house and saw the child in the arms of Mary, his mother. And Jesus looks like any toddler they've ever seen. Round face, big cheeks. He's probably squirming on Mary's lap. But these scholars know this. This child is a king. He's been confirmed by a star. He's been confirmed, his birthplace, by the words of Scripture. He is worthy of honor, and they go beyond honor to worship. Overcome, it says, they kneeled and worshiped him and they opened their luggage and presented gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, very valuable. Now this is shocking. The Jewish people are fiercely, relentlessly monotheistic. They will die rather than give that up. 
And yet, I mean, the entire religious system they have begins with this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. But Mary does not stop them from worshiping her child. She doesn't say get up. There's some surprising level where all of them see that this child is not just a new king, a new anointed leader, a messiah, but is in some way God. And they fall down. They're on their knees. They're worshiping. They're giving everything they possibly have. But as soon as those scholars report back to Herod, it's all over. That night, though, in a dream, they were warned not to report back to Herod. Now, this is a pivotal moment. What will the Magi do with their dream? Well, they've been open to nature and science and learning as best they can from it. They've been open to the Hebrew scriptures from Numbers and from Micah. And now they're open to God's communication through dreams. And so they worked out another route, left the territory without being seen, and returned to their own country. The Magi, in many ways, become a hero of the story. It's because of their openness to God, their obedience, that they protect Jesus from Herod, the tyrant who wants him. The Magi also end up providing for Jesus. Because of their lavish worship, those gifts provide the money for what's about to happen next. Verse 13. After the scholars were gone, God's angel showed up again in Joseph's dream and commanded, get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Stay until further notice, because Herod is on the hunt for this child and wants to kill him. Some of you have read a poem that's now famous by Warsan Shire, a British Somali poet. It, uh, she has a poem called Home, and she says, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. So Joseph wakes up from the dream and it's like in the middle of the night, and he flees from the mouth of a shark. He got up, takes the child and his mother under cover of darkness. They were out of town and well on their way by daylight. And they lived in Egypt until Herod's death, which happens about a year later. And yet, even this, this forced exile fulfills God's plan. This Egyptian exile, Matthew says, fulfilled what Hosea had preached. I called my son out of Egypt. Just like he called his son Israel out of Egypt, he calls Jesus out of Egypt. Now, what do you and I do with this true story? Every character offers us something. I mean, from Herod, we can see and feel what people do when they're afraid of losing place, of losing power. They may rage, they may become violent, devious. Maybe you have suffered or are suffering from someone like that. Over two-thirds of Americans don't always feel safe in their own homes and the percentage is higher if you live with someone else. So 
this is, this is a true truism of the world we live in, friends. If that's you, please make a safety plan. Joseph and Mary had to flee. It was part of what they had to do. From the Magi, we see scholars who are open to God's revelation in nature. They study it in scripture. They learn it in dreams. They take it seriously and try to discern what the meaning is. And they use their privilege to protect and to provide for a vulnerable child. Maybe you support a child through compassion. You gave Christmas gifts to the outreach store this year. Or maybe you have a niece or a nephew who needs some extra care and you help provide that. Recently, our man in our neighborhood passed away and I was touched as I read his obituary. I, I hadn't had a chance to meet him, unfortunately, but some of you might know him. Uh, Dick Nogaj, the environmental engineer who founded RJN Group. Any of you know him? Well, he invented, he, he invented several processes for treating wastewater which then became very widely used in municipal systems all over. And so he did rather well. And, but here's what he did with his influence, reading from the obituary. He advocated for civil rights and marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Chicago in 1968. Dick and a small group of like-minded people, including the Franciscan sisters, secured zoning in Wheaton in 1978 for construction of Marion Park. Now, those of you who live in Wheaton, try to imagine getting zoning for affordable housing in Wheaton today. He did it. He helped found DuPage Habitat for Humanity, and over 200 families got into housing uh, that way. And when it came time to sell his firm, rather than selling it to an individual, he sold it to his employees so that ordinary people could have equity. There's something profound about when we have capabilities, education, resources, that we use those for who, who are very vulnerable. I love the Magi for that. And finally, I think we all just have to marvel at Jesus. When God chooses to enter our world, he enters a violent world, and he comes naked, defenseless, becomes a refugee. The Bible tries to put words to that. It says, Christ Jesus had equal status with God, but he didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status, no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity. I mean, he could have called legions of angels and took on the status of a slave, became human, Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. As you know, when he grows up and does his teaching, he fulfills the words of our psalm tonight that he will defend the poor and the oppressed and those who are suffering from violence. He does it time and again. And then when he was at the end of his life, Herod's son named Herod Antipas, tries to pick up the work that his father began. 
And one day some people come to Jesus and go, get away from here if you want to live because Herod's out to kill you. And here's what Jesus says. Go tell that fox, which I love, that I'll keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and the third day I will accomplish my purpose. I will be on my purpose on my time. Herod can't take Jesus' life because he will lay it down when it's the time to do that. And he does fulfill his purpose to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus did all that for you. He came into a harsh world for you. He suffered violence for you. The Bible tells us he didn't claim special privileges. He lived a selfless, obedient life. And because of that, God lifted him high and gave him a name above every name. There is no God you'll find like this one. There is no one who can understand what you've suffered if you've suffered from an abusive person than Jesus Christ. The people in Gaza, he, he can speak to them. He knows what they're suffering. And all over the world, including in our own community and right here in this room, he is the God who comes for you. Amen.